Amen. Great time of worship. Good to be together today, gathered around God's Word. I'll ask you, church, if you'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Joel. Joel chapter 2 is where we will find ourselves this morning in verse 28. And we'll get to that here in just a second. But I want us to preface everything we're going to see this morning by just saying that uh, for too long it has been a tradition in the Baptist church uh, that there's been a, a great hesitancy and at times a refusal to discuss the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit was front and center in last week's text, and it'll be, uh, he will be first and center, front and center, rather, in this week's text as well. But we need to know this, that it is to our detriment if we indulge in that type of thinking, of refusing to really think about and, and, and dwell on and, and see from a biblical perspective who is the Holy Spirit? We, we cannot boast of the triune God of Scripture while tiptoeing around the third person of the Trinity. Now, you can also kind of feel, even though we heard some, some amens there, you can kind of feel the, the Baptist tension, kind of like, what is that? What is this? Where is this going, right? So, this morning, as we discuss the Holy Spirit for the second week in a row, my aim for us is to have a biblical understanding of the work and person of the Holy Spirit. And so take, take heed what that means, church, because as we're gonna see, the Holy Spirit brings with him a, a righteous conviction of sin that would have us make increasingly less of ourselves and more and more about God. And the problem in the church is that we have an, an ever-increasing numbness to the severity of our sin. And this has much to do with the lack of preaching emphasis of the Holy Spirit's guidance, work, and nature in our lives. So with that in mind, let's read for ourselves our text for this morning. I'll invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word from Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 28 to verse 32 is our text for today. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before your word this morning, I pray that you would enlighten our minds and that you would focus our hearts intently through the work of your Holy Spirit in us, working through your word. God, give us a greater understanding of this 
immense area of our faith that we too often ignore or, or are just scared to think about because we've seen it be abused and misused in other uh, areas of our world. And so God, I pray that you would just give us a correct understanding according to your word and that that would affect in us a vibrant faith which embraces this area of our faith and lives in accordance with your word. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, church. So again, we've found ourselves in Joel, which is that small just three chapter minor prophet that most have never read or if you have read it you maybe have skimmed through it or in it maybe like once or twice right and so you'll find it again we find it between the books of Hosea and Amos and not much is known about Joel our author himself other than that he was most likely from Judah maybe even Jerusalem itself his name itself means Yahweh is God, which, as we shall see, lends itself to the major theme of the book, which is the day of the Lord. We saw it there mentioned in our text, and it's mentioned throughout this book multiple times. Just Joel distinctly points the people toward a faith that is attentive to sin by using their current situation to point to an even more devastating reality should they not repent of sin and return to the Lord. So as he's building through this, as, we, as soon as we land on the scene in the book of Joel, what we see is a wasteland of devastation. And we read this in chapter 1. If you want to turn back just a few pages in chapter 1 and verse 4, we read, What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. So, what we have is a plague of locusts, wave upon wave, has caused a complete famine in the land. And so Joel is using this very um, present reality in the lives of the people to awaken them to the devastation that sin causes. And, and this, the, I mean, the devastation is so dire. He said the cutting locust left a little something, but the swarming locust came and ate that. And then the swarming locust, what it left, the hopping locust came and ate that. So there's, there's nothing. And then the destroying locust came and ate what is left after the hopping locust. So there's, there's nothing left, just a wasteland in uh, this time. So in the next verse, he even, he calls out, he tells drunkards to weep in verse 5. And he tells them to weep because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. So, so go ahead and start crying, you drunkards, because there's, there's not even a vine or a grape left to make anything after you drink up what you have, right? So even worse, if we jump to verse 9 there in chapter 1, we see why Joel says this is a reason for lamenting. And this is what he's trying to get to, is to use all of this devastation, this very real devastation, to have a spiritual application. And he gets to it and he shows where there's an overlap here in verse 9. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. Because if there is no grain and there is no wine to make drink, right, then the priests 
mourn the ministers of the Lord. That's what we see in verse 9. Now, we're also told exactly how the people are to see this, not just as some natural phenomenon. That's what Joel wants to get to here. Is that this isn't is just something that just happened, right? It's like, oh, well, what are you going to do? The locusts are here, right? Like, but Joel wants them to see this as God's hand of judgment against them. He wants them to understand that their flippant attitude towards sin has brought this upon them. And now the only way to properly respond is complete repentance. And so he tells them on down in verse four, verses 14 to 15 of chapter 1, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. So in the book of Joel, we go on to read. That's the first time we read that, that phrase there, the day of the Lord, right? And we go on to read that phrase four more times for a total of five explicit statements of the day of the Lord in this short book. And really, if you count, you can count even more if you go on to look at the references that simply just say the day. So Joel either says the day of the Lord or he just says the day, right? So eight times in this tiny book, he's imploring the people to look to this day and respond in repentance. He wants them to understand that this day beckons them to respond in repentance, lest they not. So when we get to chapter 2, we're presented with a contrast on this day. So if you'll turn back to, to chapter 2 and uh, verse 11. So this contrast all has to do with the Lord's presence. And this contrast is clearly seen there in verses 11 and 12 is where we start to see like, like there's, it's clear so far that this day is a day to, to be fearful of if you don't repent. But what happens if you do? So verse 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. This is chapter two, verse 11. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So that's been clear. That message has been clear up until this point. But then you get to verse 12. Yet, even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And he goes on to say in verse 13, and rend your hearts and notch your garments. Return to the Lord your God. So a contrast between those who are found simply rending their garments. So that's what we see for those in verse 11. Like if, if you're just going to rend your garments and, and weep what, what is happening here and you just wait for the day of the Lord, like this, who can endure it is the question that you're left with if that's going to be where your heart stays. Or the contrast here is those who have rented their hearts. So this day of God's presence either brings judgment or deliverance. That's what we are getting to in our text today as he continues to expound upon this in chapter 2 is that those who rend their hearts in repentance will have the Lord's Spirit 
poured out on them. And this will be jump back to our text again for today, verse, starting in verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. So preceding this coming day of the Lord is another day. A day in which God's spirit, his very presence, is poured out. And this rightfully leaves us with a lot of questions. What, what's the time frame here? What, how does this work? Like, is it going to be succinct, like boom, boom? Or like, is there going to be some time in between? And, and when is that day coming? Like, there's, there's, like, what's the time frame here? And the other question is, who is the spirit poured out on? Another question might be, why is this essential? Another question might be, what does this change? So these are questions I want to answer as we exposit this text together. Now, not to state the obvious, but again, there's a lot to break down in our text today when it comes to understanding the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. So I've chosen to, to first address this question of what is the Holy Spirit essential for? And the first thing we need to know is that the Holy Spirit is essential for salvation. Just last week, we were in Ezekiel 36, and we saw similar things of the Lord talking about pouring out His Spirit. I mean, if you want to turn back there again, you can. It's just not too far to the left there for you. But there in Ezekiel 36, we saw that, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, is not for your sake, right? So God is going to pour out His Spirit on the people for the sake of His name, and that they've profaned his name among the nations. Now, right after that, and I vaguely touched on this just very briefly last week, but right after that, you have chapter 37 of Ezekiel. And it's one of the most famous stories from Ezekiel. It's the Valley of Dry Bones, where the Lord gives Ezekiel a very physical and real representation of what this will look like for his spirit to come upon his people. And, he, and we see this in chapter 37 of Ezekiel. The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out uh, in the spirit of the Lord and sat me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. Now, Mark here, we have a valley here. And we're going to have a valley that we talk about here in a little bit in Joel. Um, but here we see this in verse 2. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. So he wants it to be very clear, Ezekiel does, that these bones were dead and had been dead a long time. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? That's the question that God asked to Ezekiel here. And I answered, oh, Lord God, you know. And then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now, it's very important. I want you to hear what he said right there. Prophesy over these bones. And then what Ezekiel does is he says, hear the word of the Lord. He says, thus says the Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you 
and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you. And so he goes on and he said, I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, this verse 7, and there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them. And so what happens, these bones come to life, and there's like live people standing before him where there was just a valley of dry, dusty bones. So he gives him a very physical representation of what it looks like for the spirit to come out upon his people. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus in John chapter 3? So we're talking about the Holy Spirit being essential for salvation here. Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, 5, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus also goes on to speak of the coming Holy Spirit many times throughout his teaching ministry. And he says this in John 16. And when he comes, the he there is talking about the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So we see many instances here. We have dead bones being brought to life. Why? Because the spirit was breathed into them. Breath was breathed into them. That's the representation there. We have Jesus say, no one, right, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And he said that he comes, the helper, as Jesus refers to him, he will come and he'll convict the world concerning sin. Well, how can we come to salvation unless we're convicted of our sin, right? Paul echoes this in 1 Corinthians 12, chapter 3. He says, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So just a few weeks ago when Kimber Davis stood in that baptistry and she said Jesus is Lord and when all of us have declared in our own hearts who believe and we say Jesus is Lord, that is the work of the Spirit within us bringing us to say those things. So the message here is clear that the Spirit of God pierces and convicts the heart of man through the Word of God and brings us unto salvation. Therefore, no spirit, no salvation. And therefore, we also need to know that the Spirit is essential for the church. Paul goes on to speak of the church. One of those popular verses he has on the church in 1 Corinthians 12. So he starts talking about the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, and he goes, continues that conversation into the church in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Now many stop, you know, we've, we've memorized that verse 12 as being about the church, right? Well, you go on to verse 13, for in one spirit, we, are, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So the spirit unites us as his church. It brings us unto salvation, unites us as his church. And the distinct characteristic of the people of God is that the presence of God dwells in them. So this also means then that the spirit is essential for missions. We have Acts 
1.8. We looked at extensively last week. For you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this is essential. Is that like in order to go about being witnesses, we need that power that comes from the Holy Spirit being in us. Because what are we witnessing to unless it's our salvation in Christ? So it is with that and in the shadow of that that you go to Acts chapter 2. I want you to turn there. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2 because I don't want us to miss this connection here. Because to this point, you might be saying like, I thought we were in Joel this morning, right? So I don't want you to miss this connection here. So in the shadow of Acts 1.8, you will see power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. We then go to the day of Pentecost. We have the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so... At the day of Pentecost, we have this crowd that is gathered, and we have, it's a very much, uh, you know, Luke wants us to understand that this is a multi-ethnic crowd. Because if you look in verses 5 through uh, 11, you'll see just all the different types of people that Luke lists. He wants us to know that there's a multi-ethnic crowd, and so... They come together and they're bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So all the apostles, because the Holy Spirit has come upon them, is speaking in the heart language of all these different ethnicities that are gathered. And that's an important detail to never miss either. But so nonetheless, you move along and you see uh, starting in verse 15. Because then people begin to say, like, they must be drunk. They must be filled with new wine. So in other words, it must be like a really high alcohol content wine that they've just been sipping on, right? And so hopefully we would not see the apostles uh, middle of the day like this. And that's what Peter says. He says, standing in the eleven, stood up and addressed them, men of Judea, this verse 14, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Don't miss verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And so, something big is happening here. Like everything that Joel said, and you go on to verses 17 through 21, and, and Peter just quotes exactly from our text from today. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, is what he says there at the end. So the apostle Peter clearly identifies the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost, which Jesus spoke of, the pouring out of the Spirit on the church, He clearly identifies that with the pouring out of the Spirit that we read of in our text for today in Joel. So now we need to ask ourselves an important question because otherwise there's there's room for a grave misinterpretation. So let's let's go back to Joel real quick. We're going to come back to Acts chapter 2 before too long. So if you want to just keep your finger there, you can. So we need to ask ourselves an important question. Otherwise there's, there's... some room for a grave misinterpretation of what God is saying and doing at this moment. Because there's a term right there in verse 28. There's a term right there in verse 28 that describes who God is pouring out his spirit on in this time that Joel's talking about and that Peter clearly identifies as the day of Pentecost. 
And then also it has implications from there on out because you'll see there in verse 28, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now that ought to cause us to pause and ask some, some questions and answer some questions before we devolve into universalism, right? And so, so the question we need to ask is who can receive the Holy Spirit? And so we go back to Acts chapter 2. I told you we were going right back. All right. So we go back to Acts chapter 2. And if you'll jump down to verse 36. Because in the meantime, after Peter says, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel, he goes on to preach his most famous sermon, right? And so all these people that were hearing them speak in their own language are now hearing Peter speak in the power that was talked about in Acts 1.8. And, uh, and so we see this tremendous response. And before we get there, we see this in verse 36, chapter 2, verse 36 of Acts. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. So now the Spirit is speaking to their hearts as well. And, and, the rest, uh, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So the Spirit of God is speaking through the Word of God, cutting these, this crowd to the heart. In verse 38, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So, who can receive the Holy Spirit? Everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. So, how do we reconcile that then with this phrase of all flesh? Well, I think we see that played out in this Acts 2 story here in the day of Pentecost and Peter's sermon on Pentecost. All flesh is not a reference to all living beings. Rather, every nationality, tribe, tongue, all flesh is, and he even goes on to say there in Joel, even servants. What we need to understand is that there is no national, ethnic, nor social distinction between who will be able to call on the name of the Lord. That's the emphasis here. It's not all flesh as in just everybody gets the spirit, have at it. But as Peter clearly outlines that you have to call on the name of the Lord, that that is who receives and everyone whom the Lord calls to himself is who receives the spirit. And so the emphasis of all flesh here is not uh, just all come or just, just uh, all call and everybody, whether believer or unbeliever, gets the spirit, but it's all that there is no national, ethnic, nor social distinction. So the people still at this time have a very close identity that in order to be the people of God, you must be an Israelite. You must be a Jew. That's the understanding. And so what Joel is echoing here, or rather the Lord through Joel, is what he's been saying from the beginning, that his name is going to be glorified among the nations. That's what we saw last week in Ezekiel as well. So the emphasis is that there's, there's no national, ethnic, or social distinction between who will be able to call on the name of the Lord. 
So now that we've squared that away, there's some more things to settle in this text. Because what do we do, therefore, with then your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions? Because that's, that's starting to sound awfully charismatic and not very Baptist, right? So for, for this reason, we have to ask this question, what does the Holy Spirit change in us? And before we can answer this question, we have to carefully define our terms, because I think that might be what the, the barrier here for us looking at this in a very biblical, holistically biblical understanding. For too long, we've allowed an incomplete definition of prophecy to skew our perception of what this looks like for the church. And sometimes it's been rightfully so, right? Because some of that has to do with how prophecy is talked about and mischaracterized and just downright lied about among the word of faith movement and charismatic movements. And so we see what they say and how they act out prophecy and we're like, I don't want anything to do with that and I don't see that in my Bible, right? And so we say like, therefore, we just got to throw that out and we kind of block it out, right? We just assume that with, with that group. So we have to break ourselves from thinking of prophecy simply in terms of future telling. That's what, that's anytime we hear that word, we think prophecy, we think it's telling the future. And that's not so biblical, biblically speaking. Most of the time when we hear that word prophecy, that's what we think of. If there's anything that's good for clearing up such misunderstandings, it's reading our Bibles. So the last several months of reading the prophets should have shown us the overwhelming amount of prophetic utterances that have nothing to do with telling of some future event, but simply with preaching the word of God and calling people to respond to it. And that's exactly what Ezekiel did in the Valley of Dry Bones, was it not? And so it was not prophesy to them and tell them of some future occurrence or read their palm and be able to tell them what's going on, but it's like prophesy to them, tell them the word of God. Thus says the word of God. So the call of the Lord through Joel and what we've been seeing building up to this message is return to me with all your heart. And here's what we should understand it to mean here when we read this word of, of prophesy and dreaming of dreams and, and seeing visions. When Joel speaks of those who have the spirit poured out of them prophesying, dreaming, and visioning, we must read it as we become consumed with God rather than self. That the Holy Spirit produces in us a higher view of God's holiness, greater understanding of our sinfulness. And so when this multi-ethnic crowd hears Peter and the apostles prophesying in the Spirit, they don't hear them telling the future. What was the message that they heard? Did they hear, you will receive wealth beyond your dreams? You'll get that promotion that you've been wanting. You're going to do things that will put you on a large platform. Did they hear, sow a seed, reap a harvest? No. What is Let me read you exactly what they heard. Acts 2.11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So the Holy Spirit sanctifies us so that our entire existence is consumed with God rather than self. Now we must ask, what is the Holy Spirit sanctifying us for? As I said earlier, Joel's message is that this time of God's presence brings with it deliverance for some, 
But for those who remain resistant to God and deny his lordship and remain defiant when it comes to sin, it brings devastating judgment. As devastating as wave upon wave upon wave of locusts just eating everything. And this is what we continue to see as he continues to break this down in verse 30 of our text today. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. So there's been a, a separation here. This is like something's happened in verses 28 through 29. Well, now something different is happening in verses 30 through 32. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the, blood, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. And if you look there and you read even a little further into chapter 3, you see, for behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, what we need to understand is some geography here, because if you go looking on your map uh, in the back of your Bible for Jehoshaphat, you're not going to find it because it's not an actual valley. What Jehoshaphat means is the Lord judges Right? And I'll enter into judgment with them there is what he says right after that. I'll gather them down to the valley. So this is a, a figurative valley that's being gathered here. But, but what's happening is not figurative. It's, it's very real. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. So what is the Holy Spirit sanctifying us for? The day of the Lord. Now, in Joel's day, it was unclear as to what the separation was there between verse 29 and verse 30. Like, what's the separation of time? What, it was unclear as to what the separation of time was between the pouring out of the Spirit and the judgment on the day of the Lord. Now, on this side of the cross, what they knew in part, we now see more clearly. That by God's grace, there is a clear separation between separation of time between the pouring out of the Spirit on all, on all flesh and the judgment and or deliverance that it might be to the increase of his glory. So at the end of Joel, he makes this abundantly clear. Go to Joel chapter 3, verse 16. So it's towards the end of his message here. And we read, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So again, we have this clear identity of what this day is going to be, that for some, it's going to be awful. Who can endure it? And for others who have refuge, it will be a day of deliverance. And the message throughout Joel and throughout God's word as a whole is clear. If you remain indifferent to sin, you have no refuge. But in Christ, we have a strong refuge. And so I urge you now, repent of sin. Rend your heart and not just your garments and turn to Christ. 
as this is the plea of the gospel. This is the call of the gospel. This is what the Spirit empowers us to share among the nations, is that the day of the Lord is coming, and that by His grace, He has provided an ample time between the pouring out of His Spirit and that day. But the day is drawing ever closer as we go every day. And so that day bears a response. Will you have refuge? Will you be, find that day as a day of deliverance? Or will you be the ones who say, who can endure it? This is the call of the gospel. So respond, repent, rend your heart, and turn to Christ. Let's pray, church. God, as we consider your word, the just immense humbling nature of what we've read today through your servant, Joel. The incredible grace that we see that you have poured out your spirit upon us to make us temples of the living God. Lord, help us as your church pursue holiness according to your word. Yeah, for those who do not have your spirit, do not have refuge in Christ, have not responded through repentance of sin. And I pray that you would draw them to yourself, that your spirit would pierce their hearts, moving them to repentance and causing them to cry out, Jesus is Lord. I pray that if there be anyone here who finds themselves in that situation, that you would move them in obedience to this. That you would help them to find me or find the person that brought them, find the person next to them, the believer next to them, and ask them to help them to cry out to the Lord. God, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.